0: Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.
1: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition.
2: The world is witnessing another economic crisis in emerging markets, but maybe this time really is different and a political crisis is engulfing Britain as Brexit gets closer and both major parties struggle to formulate a plan. Welcome to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, coming to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London. Mary Kissel is still away, safely ensconced in her secure undisclosed location. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague Hugo Restall, who's coming from his accustomed secure and undisclosed location in Asia. Hi, Hugo.
1: Hi, Joe. Good to be with you.
2: Oh, great to have you here! I gather you've been in Hong Kong, uh, drying out from the typhoon that just passed through, and so we will uh, try to take your mind off of all of the rain and the wind as we talk about the economic storms that have been buffeting parts of the emerging world. Because we have another emerging market crisis in motion over the past few weeks. We've got Turkey's currency, the lira, has lost something like forty percent of its value this year, and the central bank last week raised its interest rates by about six percentage points or more. Uh, We've got the Argentine peso, of course, losing around 50% of its value this year. Uh, We've got exchange rate declines in South Africa, Brazil, and India. And this is happening in part because we've got a booming economy in the U.S. right now. So we have a lot of dollars flowing back to America at the moment. But Hugo, the thing that I find most interesting about this is actually the crisis that is not happening because we've got a lot of our usual suspects in East Asia, uh, particularly uh, you know countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, are actually holding up pretty well. And uh, I think that the really interesting question about all of this is why? What has changed such that all of a sudden we seem to be having a bit less contagion in this year's emerging market crisis than we've had in the past, where it seemed like there was a crisis in one country, and then all of a sudden we had emerging markets around the world going haywire.
1: Well, I think a lot of the south of uh, the East Asian economies have been stress tested. You remember the 2013 taper tantrum uh, when the Fed indicated that it might soon start tapering it off its purchases of, of bonds. And uh, a lot of the countries in East Asia got a bit of a shock and realized that they needed to look at their debt and and the markets sort of enforce some discipline at that point. And I think that really benefited the economies now as as we finally get into uh serious type monetary tightening in the U.S.
2: You know, I think that it is important to make this point that there is an aspect of learning about this. And uh, you know, the learning, I think, has been most striking, uh, you know, not just on the part of individual companies and their understanding of how they need to uh, arrange their balance sheets and their mix of uh, local versus foreign currency debts uh, and the like to be prepared, but also learning that seems to go on on the part of a lot of uh, governments. I mean, I remember... From my time in Hong Kong, hearing, uh, talking to policymakers in a lot of countries, who had been really battered terribly during the East Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, and took great pains uh, to learn policy lessons from that, and yeah, that strikes me as a really important point to to think about here, because it goes to show that actually the markets will reward better policymaking. There isn't an element of uh, inevitable victimhood about some of these global capital flows that actually, uh, you know, if policymakers and businesses are careful enough, uh, investors will reward that.
1: Right. I definitely think after the 1997 Asian financial crisis, governments took a lot of lessons. Uh, If you look at some of the more vulnerable countries in, in Asia, such as Indonesia They controlled their government spending after that, and uh, they've limited their fiscal deficits uh, to below 3% of GDP. Countries have also increased their foreign exchange reserves, which of course is a buffer. It it doesn't uh, prevent a crisis, but it can uh, help maintain confidence that countries can weather a Small storm. And so the combination of of governments learning and then market participants, uh, companies, individuals learning um, and adjusting their leverage and making preparations for potential storms, all this together, I think, is the resilience of uh, East Asian economies.
2: Now, of course, the other thing that's been going on here that I think we need to talk about um, in some detail is the China angle on this, because the other big thing that has changed in the Asian economy over the past 20 years has been uh, China's continuing rise, uh, relatively strong growth uh, over the long term uh, in mainland China. And I have noticed that we are starting to hear a storyline that one of the reasons that some of the South and Southeast Asian, East Asian economies have been somewhat less vulnerable to uh, some of these currency. Gyrations be, you know, that are caused by the flow of dollars in and out of the U.S. economy is that China has emerged as a bulwark in the region. And the big question I've got is, you know, how serious is that? Because you know, we've had this storyline at various times in the past that China was emerging as a uh, you know, competing center of economic activity in the region. I think that there probably is some truth to that. I mean, is this a sign that actually China is starting to play some of the the role that the the U.S. economy used to play in terms of being regional ballast or you know a stabilizing force, uh, you know, a country that a lot of these Asian economies have a relationship with, you know, so that those trading ties can offset some of the changes that happen with the U.S.
1: Certainly, China has gained a reputation of being less vulnerable to crises. And that's based on its experience in 1997 and 2008. But China is not uh, really a buyer of last resort in the region. I mean, its economy is also facing some pretty severe headwinds at the moment. And uh, it, I don't think it's in a position where it could, um, you know, bail out its its neighbors. It's, it's looking at... Um, Self-preservation at this point, a lot of its, its problems are internal um, rather than uh, connected to the trade wars or necessarily the, the Fed tightening. Um, it's got a, a natural structural slowdown occurring. At the same time as it built up a lot of debt uh, over the last decade, uh, corporate debt in particular um, and so it's its potential growth rate is slowing um, and it's got finan its financial sector is looking a little bit vulnerable so i I think it would be uh, a mistake to look at China as the uh, the invulnerable bulwark of the region
2: well that actually then raises in my mind a- another big question that always comes up in a lot of these discussions. I mean, we started our chat about this emerging market situation in uh, East Asia in particular, thinking in terms of learning and what uh, some of these smaller economies, their policymakers, their businesses had learned from uh, previous episodes of uh, financial economic stress, especially that 97 East Asian crisis. You know, I wonder sometimes what are China's, you know, spurs for learning in in, in this sense? I mean, because they have, um, you know, they were very concerned about the uh, 2007-2008 financial panic that unfolded in the West. I mean, we've talked in the past about the extraordinary measures that Beijing took to try to uh, unleash more credit into the economy, to try to buffer themselves against that. But I mean, you you start to wonder, I mean, what are they actually learning as time goes on about uh, how to better protect themselves against the kind of crises that even a large emerging economy might be prone to at some point?
1: Well, it's a very mixed picture. I mean, it's a bit of a Rorschach test in a way, because you look at certain things that are going on in China and you say the uh, The the authorities are very prudent. They're trying to de-risk the economy, uh, control the shadow banking sector, reduce leverage. At the same time, uh, they're also ramping up some stimulus now to try to uh, stop the economy from slowing too much. And they're using a lot of the same uh, methods that they used after the 2008 crisis, which is increase infrastructure spending and allow local governments to Borrow uh, in order to finance these projects, and uh, that that th- they're really two opposite uh, trends and it 's interesting to watch analysts uh, try to assess which of those trends is going to be dominant uh, at the moment you have them both working at cross purposes, which is very confusing but my guess is that that the Letting the local governments off the leash, so to speak, um, create its own momentum, which is then very hard to um, put back in the the bottle. So uh, they've recently allowed local governments to issue bonds and encourage the banks to buy those bonds, finance uh, new infrastructure projects, which the central government is approving. And as these work their way uh, through the system, we start to see that investment come on stream. Um, the, the level of debt in the economy will start to rise again. And uh, the economy may grow a bit, a bit faster, but the risk will also increase.
2: I, I think that ultimately is what I've always found so perplexing about this. And again, it is such a striking contrast to uh, what you see in a lot of other parts of the region the the fact that uh, you have a, a crisis in some of these smaller economies and because they are smaller they have no choice uh, but to learn from that to try to reform uh, to get the budget and credit creation under control uh, to try to better protect themselves in the future. I I do think that China is probably suffering from the fact that its size allows it to continue to do more of the things that it has been doing all along, such as uh, credit creation, even if it's trying to find new ways to um, issue bonds within the economy that might uh, be a little more efficient. Um, And, you know, you you, you do wonder how much longer can they continue, uh, you know, going down that path of trying the same things that they've been doing all along um you know before that kind of model really catches up to them
1: right in 2015 they had a little bit of a of a crisis with the stock market crashing and some capital flight and they tightened up the uh, capital controls which has isolated them more from the, the world economy so that discipline is is not there to the extent that it was pre 2015 when they were talking about internationalizing the yuan and they were relaxing capital controls so they were starting to get some uh, market discipline uh, coming in through through those those open doors. Now they've closed the doors again and uh, they don't have the benefit, as you say, of the bond market vigilantes, uh, as, as Clinton put it um, uh, in the 1990s. I mean, that can be very beneficial in, in terms of spurring uh, structural reforms that, that then lay the, the groundwork for prosperity and growth.
2: We're discussing the secrets of Chinese economic growth and this is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal.
0: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
1: Drive time. Gym time. Anytime. Podcasts from The Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com podcasts. That's wsj.com podcasts. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition.
2: Welcome back to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, in for Mary Kissel, and I'm joined on the line by my colleague Hugo Restall. And uh, we are going to now head up to Europe to talk about a political crisis that just gets worse and worse, Brexit. So Britain's parliament has returned from its summer break earlier this month. And uh, Hugo, I have to say it is remarkable that the chaos only seems to grow more chaotic the longer that the members of the British parliament are all back in town here in London. So we've got the ruling Conservative Party falling apart over a Brexit plan that we all thought they had agreed on months ago. We've got the opposition Labour Party not able to decide whether or how it wants to oppose Brexit. I mean, it really does seem like we've got Brexit officially happening in March next year, and Britain's political class is still in total disarray about this.
1: Right. So the latest I see is uh, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan calling for a second referendum. Is there really a, a, a groundswell of support for that within the Labour Party? Um, because, you know, up until now, the, the Labour Party has been at least somewhat content to, to sit on the sidelines and, and not uh, get drawn into this this disarray. Um, does this now put the, more of the onus on them? and and, uh, take the heat off the Tories?
2: Well, so we're coming up on a a really important moment in this debate uh, in the coming weeks for a couple of reasons. First off, we're going to have a series of European Union uh, summits where the heads of state for the bloc, the the remaining EU 27, uh, have another opportunity to discuss with themselves and their negotiator, uh, Michel Barnier, where they think this process stands and how they can move forward from here. We're also coming up on Britain's annual party conference season. Now, if American listeners think that a political party convention every four years is bad enough, here they do them annually uh, in the autumn. And so we're coming up on a series where both the, the conservatives, the, the ruling party of Theresa May, uh, and the opposition labor uh, led by Jeremy Corbyn are going to be uh, convening large numbers of party uh, faithful. To tr- and you know, you can bet you that Brexit is going to be front and center. And so, you know, I think I, I feel like we should update listeners on all of this for, you know, for people who are keeping score at home. I mean, on the, the conservative side, the, the government side, the real divide seems to be between uh, Theresa May, the prime minister, and her supporters who are clinging to uh, what's known as the checkers plan. It's named after the prime minister's summer residence checkers, uh, which is where this was negotiated. It's it's a, meant to be a roadmap for something that the government could agree that they want to push for in terms of a future trading relationship with the EU. But you've got a bunch of conservative politicians uh, within the Tory party who are sniping about that, who are claiming that it would be a sellout, that it wouldn't deliver a full Brexit, Meanwhile, on the labor side, you do now have some of these calls for a second referendum, but you also have a, a, a emerging faction uh, suggesting that really the way out of this is a proper parliamentary election, either sometime later this fall or in the spring, to, to pass a verdict on this. I actually think that that is probably the more dangerous outcome here, because that... Uh, you know the prospect of another election. If there's a real danger that uh, the Conservatives lose it, that is how you end up with uh, you know a far left radical like Jeremy Corbyn becoming the Prime Minister.
1: Mm-hmm. So the the Checkers roadmap. Explain this to me. I mean, they, they want to keep Theresa May wants to keep uh, Britain in the single market for goods, but not for services. Uh, is that is
2: that correct? Uh, yeah, that's the broad outline. There are two problems that they really need to solve here. One of them uh, is the issue broadly of the UK's relationship with the rest of the EU. And there they really do want to try to keep uh, the trade in goods as open as possible, because what they've discovered is that British industry is really tied in to supply, tra- uh, supply chains that crisscross the English Channel and that really rely on the kind of just-in-time delivery that you can only get if you don't have to worry about long tedious customs enforcement at the border so that's one problem right. that checkers is supposed to solve and then the other problem that they have to uh, try to avoid is imposing any kind of customs checks along the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and this is because you know, a lot of listeners uh, you know won't be aware the the good friday peace accord in the late 90s the, really tried to settle the sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland left a lot of ambiguity about the nature of that border and how hard a border it should be. And really, it was premised on the idea that both sides of it would be in the EU so that you could have free trade and free movement between them. And the real battle has been coming up with some kind of Brexit solution that can maintain Um, You know, peace in the region, not tilt the scale too far one way or the other, um, you know, in favor of the various factions that are still active there, uh, while also delivering a UK that is outside of the the EU. Uh, And, you know, this has really turned out to be the problem that is consuming the Conservative Party, figuring out how to uh, settle that and it's amazing because it was a real sleeper issue hardly any of the uh, you know pro brexit politicians talked about the ireland situation at all before the referendum.
1: Mhm. So uh w- when this uh when they go to the EU with this proposal, uh so far the EU seems to have said uh, no to everything that the UK has proposed. What are the chances that uh they, they accept something close to the checkers plan?
2: Well, I'm, you know, it's not necessarily looking very good, because I think that uh, oh. the other thing that a lot of the Brexiteers uh, underestimated when they got into this process was the depth of EU conviction on a lot of these issues. And uh, there was a tendency to under, uh, underestimate how red some of these red lines actually are on the, the side of the EU-27. And you know the, the, the customs enforcement in the single market is a big issue for them and also um you know living up to their half of the uh, good friday accords in northern ireland to try to prevent the development of a hard border in that region also is very important to them remember the republic of ireland on the other you know, the southern side of that border uh is still going to be a member of the european union and the, the eu feels committed to that um you know, to the, the interest of preserving peace uh, on the the, the, isle- you know, the island as a whole. And so, you know, what we're going to have to come up with is some solution where either you can uh, work around in some way the need for a, a border on the uh, island of Ireland, you're going to need to come up with some way of having a customs border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK so that uh, Northern Ireland can continue trading freely with the rest of the EU across that border, or some other solution. And I my big impression is that the rest of the EU is just frustrated that after all of this time, the UK side doesn't have more to say on these issues. Because remember, it is the UK that has come in asking for a change to the arrangement that had seemed to be working there before.
1: Is there any chance of extending the deadline uh, for uh, finding a, a, a total solution here? I mean, I know that According to the EU law, it has to be settled within two years of invoking uh, the intent to to leave. But could there be a, a grace period? Um, before we we get a, uh, a solution on some of these really thorny issues,
2: well, I think that that would certainly uh, be the preferred solution if you just look at the way that the European Union has always solved difficult problems in the past, which is try to you know try to kick that can as far down the road as you possibly can, and then uh, you know, cross your fingers and hope for the best. Um, I mean, you're going to have a bunch of impediments to that, though. And I mean, first is the fact that it is black-letter law that Brexit is going to happen in March of 2019, uh, You know, two years on from when Britain triggered this formal um, negotiating process, absent some you know, heretofore unconsidered intervention in that. And, you know, I think, frankly, also, there's going to need to be more of a sense of fair play on the UK side, um, you know, perhaps a bit more good faith about the conduct of these negotiations, because the frustration that I keep hearing from a lot of people within the EU 27 is just the sense that, you know, we feel like we can't really make any big concessions or offers to the UK side if we can't be sure that the government is then going to be able to Deliver an agreement um, on on the on that basis once the you know Theresa May and her uh, you know, colleagues get back to London and have to try to sell it here and uh, because the, the EU twenty seven feel like they're in this difficult position where they are being asked to offer some of these concessions without any guarantee that if they make the politically difficult step of even making the offer that there will be some reward for them in terms of a, an actual deal at the end of it. Um, right. and, and so, I mean, that and that's another aspect in which this confusion here in the UK is so poisonous to this process. It really is making the EU 27 wonder, what can any British government actually deliver?
1: Because the final agreement does have to get through Parliament in London, right?
2: Uh, exactly. And, you know, even just in the past few days, we've had uh, you know, leading members of the Labour Party in Parliament suggesting that they are prepared to say that they will vote down any agreement uh, Theresa May would come back with uh, on this issue, perhaps to try to force an election or a second referendum uh, before they've even seen it. And, you know, given how close the, um, you know, actually the Conservatives don't have a majority on their own in Parliament, they rely on a, a very loose coalition agreement with the Northern Ireland Party. Um, you know, I think that there really is a, a, a serious question about how any of this is going to get through. But we've been talking Brexit chaos and confusion, and we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thanks to my colleague, Hugo Restall, for joining me again today. And please be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at at Joseph Sternberg, and Hugo is at Hugo Restall, all one word for both of us. I'm Joseph Sternberg, and on behalf of Hugo and myself, thanks for listening, and we'll join you again soon.
0: The Claude three Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash claude.